seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be starting in verse 19 this morning. But for the past few weeks, we've been casting a vision for really initiating and applying the types of changes that God wants to work into our lives through the faith that we claim to have in His Son, Jesus Christ There are many things that need to converge in our lives for those changes to happen. From understanding that it is the choices that we make that will accomplish the changes that God wants us to be obedient about, to having an agenda in all of our relationships that must necessarily intersect with a clear vision for discipleship, We really need a vision for how all of the stuff of life works together to grow our faith to the glory of God and for the good of others. And today what I want to deal with is what I believe to be the most tempting false God in our immediate context. And it's an issue that everyone loves for pastors to talk about, and that's the issue of money. Uh, I don't think anybody uh, comes to church and says, you know what I hope the pastor talks about today is money. But the key is, I think one of the reasons that we react that way is, of course, because uh, some guys have uh, not done well with the money people give to the church. You won't find that here. I never touch it. (laughs) But uh, because uh, the reason we don't like to talk about it is because money really is one of the most personal things in our lives. And it is one of the things that we are the most tempted not just to misuse, But money is one of those things that really is used in our culture and in our society to keep score. It's how we define winners and how we tend to define losers. It's how we find our identity. We have created, not just in our nation, but over the history of the world, class systems are ultimately formed around the reality of who has more money than someone else. It is this powerful force in our lives that goes beyond just the monetary number that we may or may not have. And I will tell you that as one of the pastors of this church, I've found and I've seen that money really is the root of all types of evil in the lives of Village Church, but not the money itself, but rather the love that we have for money. I want to talk about the intersection really this morning of money and worship Two things that are interwoven and are, you cannot separate the two of them. They're that forceful in our lives. Because the truth about you, and you may not know this, and you may deny it, but it's true. You are either going to worship God with your money, or you are going to worship money. And this is not a new reality. The Bible is so filled with texts about money. And most of you ignore them. But it is difficult, really, and it was this week in the past few weeks to edit this sermon down to just the verses that I included. And I'm not kicking off a capital campaign this morning, even though we probably will this year. And so this isn't going to be a sermon of me telling you how much you need to give to the church or if you need to give a certain amount to the church at all. Rather, what I want to do for us is, as I've been doing through this sermon series, is I really want to give us a 15,000-foot view. And I want to really just cast a vision to form what the Bible shows us should be a biblical view of money, but also how we can wield money to worship God with our finances. 
Because some people don't think that you can. So my goal for today is not to guilt trip anyone, even though that is always inevitable. (laughs) My hope is to cast a vision for you to consider the way that you both view and use your finances for the glory of God in all things. If all of our lives exist for the glory of God, and I don't think it's a surprise that you think that I believe that, that all of our lives exist for the glory of God, and Scripture has an abundance of clear warnings as well as commands about any singular issue, then I think you would agree that we must pay attention and heed the reality of temptation in those areas for our lives. Because the fact is where money is concerned, people in poverty as well as people with abundant riches both struggle with this specific issue. For one, money would be the answer to every problem that you have because you don't have it. And you're like, if I did, I wouldn't have any debt, have a better house, a better car. I'd be prettier, even though you wouldn't be. But do you think it's the answer to every problem that you have because you believe you lack something? But even for those who have an abundance of wealth, they still struggle with the idea that I'm more valuable The idea that I have the answer to many problems, yet, even through every day in their lives, you can see the destruction that sin still brings into their lives through their very pursuit for finances. And so, I want to start with a statement to kind of head some of you off at the pass. I don't believe money is evil. I actually believe Scripture presents to us a statement that money is a gift from God into our lives. And because money is a gift from God into our lives, it must then be stewarded to show His great value in our lives and then wisely applied to our lives to live responsible, effort-filled lives to further the mission of Jesus into our lives as well as the lives of others for the sake of the church of Jesus Christ. But in the same vein, even though money is a gift from God, it's all about the way you receive the gift that determines how you will both view and use the gift. I want to begin reading in Matthew chapter 6, looking in verse 19. Do not... Now, I want to be clear on this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, I want you to think about what Jesus is saying right there. He's equating two different systems of worth. Number one this morning, I want you to understand faith in Jesus changes your value system. Faith in Jesus changes your value system. Now, money is necessarily how we assign value to things. I mean, how we assign value to everything. I already said money really is how we keep score of winners and losers in our lives. Life can often be summed up by your pockets and your pursuits. It's how we assign value. We asked the question just this past week. How many times have you asked the great question? How much does it cost? It's an overarching question that we ask over and over and over because it, it, it communicates something very important of how we value things. 
Even when we ask questions, how much time am I going to spend on this? How much effort does this or that require? Now, I asked three different questions there, but all of those questions can actually be answered for many people with money. You save it, you spend it, you chase it. You are consumed by how much you have or how much more you want to get or how much they have and how you wish you had as much as they do. Money affects how we use our time and money affects how much time we can invest in other things. And so money then for many can ultimately show what is really important to you. But it, more than that, to be more specific, money can show where God actually is valued in your life. And I think that is why Jesus dealt with it so directly in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, and the text following. What he is dealing with is deeper than how much money someone has or how much money someone spends, because that's human judgment. That's how we look at things. Jesus goes deeper to the heart of the matter, beyond what you spend to what you actually value. And so what Jesus is talking about is he's comparing and contrasting two different value statements. How do you define treasure? How do you ascribe worth to something? What is worth your pursuits in this life based on the worldview of eternity? Because note, as soon as Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where does he immediately go to? He goes to the issue of eternity. He goes to the issue. You are not just some directionless, meaningless being that is on this planet for 70 to 90 years and then nothing. Now, Jesus, if you follow him, if you are a Christian, if you've put your faith in Jesus, then you believe that life lasts literally for eternity. So how would it make sense that you, someone who believes in eternity, invests everything that they have in things that will only last 70 to 90 years? And so Jesus is saying, be honest about value. Eternity values more than the temporal, than the temporary, than the transient. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, just according to those two verses, what we've already read so far, Jesus is saying, if you are a follower of his, then you will have a value system that transcends numbers. You will have a value system that goes beyond bank accounts. You will have a value system that stretches beyond your physical existence in this world because you have a value system that will endure for all eternity. Therefore, Jesus is posing a question to you. Do your investments reflect that? Or do your investments reflect a person that only believes 70 to 90 years and then nothing? See, that's why Jesus is dealing with the issue of value. Because faith in Jesus changes how you both find as well as give worth into something. I mean, think about it this way. 15% of all of Jesus' teachings were about money. Did you know that? That is more than heaven and hell combined. In the four gospel accounts, there are 288 verses on money found 
in those gospel accounts in Jesus' life physically in this world alone. That does not include all that Jesus says in the topic, um, on this topic in the rest of Scripture because it's all from Him. Many Christians, people who claim faith in Jesus Christ, invest their time, talent, and finances as if this world is all that there is. Yet Jesus challenges that mindset directly on. And so what is he ultimately talking about? Jesus is talking about the reality of what it means to live with a Christian worldview. That you will view finances, you will view resources, you will view who you are differently than people who do not believe that Jesus is Lord of all, that he died on the cross for your sin, that he rose from the dead to give you the gift of eternal life. Because you can draw a direct line to the gospel of Jesus Christ as to what he is ascribing the most value to in verse 20. Our stewardship of our finances then must intersect with how we value God because according to Jesus Christ, the way that we view value in this world is necessarily directed and a reflection of how we view God. Now, a direct line from this statement can be drawn to what's called the parable of the rich fool. It's a parable that we don't really talk about much because I don't think we want to be honest with ourselves. It's in Luke 12. In Luke 12, starting in verse 15, Jesus tells this parable. And he, Jesus, told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And I want to pause there. Because here's where we make a mistake with money. And often it's the first mistake that you make because, well, the first thing you're going to exegete in this text is the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And many of you will believe the first sin that this man committed. How dare he produce plentifully? What was he thinking? But that's not the problem. Jesus isn't saying that producing plentifully in your life, even with a view of finances, is the problem. That's not the problem. The problem's about to happen with what he does with the plentiful bounty. Keep reading. And he thought to himself, that's where we all go wrong. <laughs> Start thinking, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Isn't that the dream? Retire at 35. Sit on your butt the rest of your days. All right. Isn't that the dream? Well, here's the issue. God's telling us that's a problematic dream. Keep going. Verse 20, but God said, anytime you start to think, that's the first place you need to go. Has God said anything already that needs to invade my thought process? Keep going. But God said to him, fool, you don't want God to say that. <laughs> this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not, key phrase, rich toward God. Why wasn't he rich toward God? Because God had blessed him bountifully, according to the text. You know that bank account? You know your house? You know your car? You know your 401k? You know all of those things that you have? God gave them to you. 
And he wants you to steward them. But this man says, the best I can come up with is me. It's all for me. It's all about me. I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to build more barns. I'm going to get more stuff. I'm going to build bigger, better, faster, stronger. So I can sit. So I can relax. So I can eat, drink, be merry. And then God says, you are claiming right here to be Lord of your life. And God wants every one of us to know he can kill us tonight. He can call us home right now. And then he says, what of your stewardship then? Did you use any of the blessings I gave you to show that God is of your utmost value? Sometimes we reduce the issue of money to a level where it's easier if we just don't have any because then we don't have to deal with it. And obviously, people that have money are sinners. But note, the text starts with God. Remember, this is Jesus Christ speaking. This is the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God made him produce a bountiful harvest. And so, if you're rich, that's a gift of God. If you're poor, that's a gift of God. And you're going to pray for the rest of your life that he makes you rich. But the key isn't how much or how little you have. The key is how are you wielding what God has so graciously provided right here, right now, to show I believe my life is eternal. Because if all I can find in your stewardship is me, 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 then what God is saying, you are worshiping me, me, me. I did a little research according to the U.S. Census real estate data. This actually surprised me. In the 1950s, the average U.S. home had 292 square feet per person. Now, I know grandma and grandpa tell you they went uphill, you know, both ways. They lived in a one bedroom shack. All right. So not 292 square feet total, 292 square feet per person. In the 2010s, that number actually rose to 924 square feet per person. Now, but also consider this. The average home also went from 3.37 people down to 2.59 people per household. And so we have larger homes with smaller families. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not dealing with the wisdom of investing in new homes or investing in real estate for large returns. There's a lot of wisdom there. There's a great business there. That's not what I'm talking about. That's a stewardship conversation for another day. I'm dealing with the question of why we need more space for fewer people and what that says about my motivations and pursuits. Because I've got to deal with Steve Gentry in this issue. I'm not even kidding. Just this past week, the house that we, my wife, and my kids, we currently live in is literally double the size of the first house that my wife and I purchased when we were early in our marriage. And so we've doubled our house in size. And just this last week, I literally looked at my wife and said, I think we need about a thousand more square feet. 
And so you're not the only person that's dealing with this. I'm dealing with these questions. And how do I hold all of that intention in my life? Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8, I believe, gives a great wisdom in how we think about finances just from a foundational level. The proverb, the author of this uh, chapter writes, remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. It's fascinating when you consider that he writes, not poor or rich. Why would he write something like that? Not because there's anything inherently sinful about either category. He's going to a deeper level of the heart. And what he's saying is, God, I know that if I'm deep in poverty, my life is going to be saturated with a desire for more. And I know that if I'm filled with wealth, I'm going to have even more temptation in my life to where I'm consumed to believe that that is the God that I need to pursue in worship. And what he's saying is, God, always keep me in a position where I love you more than all of this. That's the heart of that prayer. And I think that is what Jesus is getting at in Luke chapter 12. He's talking about value, just like he is in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. There must be a wise notion in our lives of tension and how we deal with worldly possessions and wealth. That is where God is directing our attention. The pursuit of created things corrupts. It does. And it corrupts us very quickly because Romans chapter one warns us that when we begin to pursue creation rather than the creator, there's a pattern of sin that just gets deeper and deeper and sicker and sicker and darker and darker. The tension within the use of money is typically going to be less about what you buy and more about why you are buying it and what you are wielding it for in your life. I, like most pastors, love the Lord of the Rings. Uh, It's probably, in my opinion, one of the greatest stories, at least in a contemporary setting ever written. I believe it has this great analogy within the story with the character Gollum. Now, Gollum was in possession of what was called the Ring of Power. And he showed through his life the power that the Ring of Power could wield in the person's life who possesses it because the ring began to possess him. He begins, the history of the story tells us, as a normal storish hobbit. But his obsession and pursuit of keeping the ring destroys him from the inside out until he's unrecognizable even by other hobbits. If you've seen the portrayal of the film, it shows that he actually evolves into a hideous and unrecognizable monster whose singular focus is keeping the ring for himself. Friends, I will tell you, the pursuit of worldly riches will do the same thing to you as it ultimately will destroy any real faith that you may have ever had in Jesus Christ. But I will tell you, it isn't the finances that destroy you. It's false worship. God, the creator, the provider, the gift giver, he wants you to steward what he gives you to show his great glory. Number two this morning, money is used for worship or becomes what you worship. 
Money is either going to be used for worship or it is going to become what it is that you worship. Your vision of treasure, according to Jesus, is what's going to direct your faith. Look in Matthew chapter 6 again, starting in verse 21. Very famous verse. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? He's talking about vision. What is your vision for your stuff? Verse 24, no one, underline that, no one, because there are at least 15 to 20 people in this room that believe you are the exception to verse 24. You're deceived. You're like, well, Jesus couldn't have figured it out, but I did. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can not serve God and money. You can't do it. I know a few of you think you've cracked the code. I know a few of you think that you've developed a system where you can simultaneously pursue both God and money at exactly the same time. This might come as a surprise to you. You are not smarter or wiser than Jesus Christ. You aren't. And so when he says, no one, you cannot accept it. And where repentance is needed, get to repenting. Because of the curse of sin in this world, we are tempted to value things that won't even outlive the next five years, much less our entire lifetimes. And so Jesus redirects us and then warns us that this will not be an easy adjustment. Understand, he's talking about value systems. You know how difficult it is to change your entire value system? Humanly speaking, it's impossible. You cannot do it. That is why the changes that God wants to work in your life through faith in Jesus Christ are so transformational that it demands the power and work of the Holy Spirit in your life to be able to accomplish it. And so what he's doing is when he says where your treasure is, there your heart will be. This is a statement of worship. You believe that before you can obey, before you can do anything, before you can commit, you've got to feel a certain way. Your heart has to be in it or else it's phony. It's inauthentic. And Jesus challenges that idea. What he says is if you don't move your treasure there, your heart will never move. God did not mean for you to be a stagnant pool. He meant for you to be a flowing river. Creation is meant to worship God. Creation is meant to be used by humans exercising dominion over creation in order to show God's great worth and value through our stewardship of it. You know what that means? It means that making money isn't a bad thing. Making money is a good thing. I don't know if you've ever been to the grocery store and tried to get the food without paying for it. It usually ends in handcuffs. I don't know if you've ever had kids, but they like to eat, don't they? And the older they get, if you're a new parent in here, I'm sorry, this is as cheap as it's ever going to be. <laughs> they just eat more. They get hungrier. They start eating more than you do. 
Look how big I am. I don't know how they do that. But making money is good because it it can form a responsible life of stewarding the gifts of God to the glory of God, being responsible in the way that you make your money, being responsible in the way that you spend your money. But right there is our problem because whenever God calls us to be responsible, temptation will be close at hand to be irresponsible. In our pursuits, we are going to be tempted to chase after creation rather than wield it to show the value of God. We're going to try to wield it for our own leisure and for our own glory by assigning eternal value to temporary things rather than to the eternal God. And so if you're a Christian, you need to learn to score points for Jesus rather than scoring points in this world for yourself. And this is all going to be accomplished according to Matthew 6, because what does he do? He starts talking about the eyes. He says, this is about the way you view things. This is about the way you think about things. So how do you think about money? Do you think about money? And obviously your thoughts are the light of Christ. But then he poses the reality that oftentimes the way that we think about money reveals a great darkness. And darkness is always carrying with it deception. 1 Timothy 6.10, I believe, is sobering. Apostle Paul is actually writing in 1 Timothy to a pastor. And he's helping a younger pastor learn how to disciple his people. And he says this, he says, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Right there is a correction. Because the popular saying is to misquote this. Popular saying is, money is the root of all evil. That's... Not what the text says. Money, as I said, is a good gift from God. But the love of money is the root of all types of evil. He says, it is through this craving, lust, desire. I want more. Norman Rockefeller at one time was the richest man alive. And one of his famous sayings, somebody asked him a question because they said, you're so rich. When is it going to be enough? And he says, just one more dollar. Craving that some have wandered away from the faith, pierced themselves with many pangs. It's fascinating. What Paul is saying to Timothy here is the same thing that Jesus is saying, that when you begin to love money, that is not the only sin that's being carried close at hand. Because what a lot of rich people won't admit is that money provides a lot more opportunity for sin than poverty. Money opens doors that poverty doesn't. Money provides margin that other people don't have. So the love of money carries with it a craving that you're going to be tempted to chase after. Money, though, the love of it, the pursuit of it, is really ultimately about what motivates you to get up in the morning and build a life worth living. How you use money will change your heart. It's just a fact. But note that in 1 Timothy, Paul isn't saying the answer is get rid of everything. Take a vow of poverty. He doesn't say that. Why? Because Paul assumes there are rich people in Timothy's church. How do I know that? Skip down to verse 17 from verse 10. What does he say? As for the rich in this present age. See, he was having budget meetings already in Timothy's church. 
He's like, Timothy, there's going to be rich people in your church. And guess what? You not only need to pastor those who are struggling financially, you're also going to be responsible to pastor people who are affluent. You have to pastor people who have money. And he says, it's going to be hard to pastor them because sometimes you're going to be intimidated by them and you need their money to keep the lights on and build balconies. But he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. What that means is outwardly prideful. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Luke 12, tonight you're going to die. But on God, who richly provides us, and I love this part, with everything to enjoy. A lot of people skip that. Paul isn't saying... Don't be mad at them that they have so much. And also don't be mad at them when they use it. Money is a gift from God. And all gifts from God are meant to be enjoyed. As a rich person in here just got liberated. Like I'm going on vacation. They are to do good. To be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share. Thus, back to Luke 12, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So what Paul says is, those rich people desperately need your discipleship. They need your help to learn what it is, to learn not to set their hopes on their riches because there's going to be a natural temptation for them to set their hope on their riches. But you've got to confront them that they must pursue God. The truth is riches. And I know there's not a single person in here that doesn't want riches. It brings that temptation into your life. And so you need to pursue God with as much energy as you have because it comes with a realization everything that I've been given is a gift from God and if I just spend it on me I'm not showing that I value eternity I'm showing that I value me there's a reason that in Matthew 19 24 Jesus made the statement it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle The reason that he said that is because when you have much where creation is concerned, it is naturally going to be a greater temptation to just keep looking at it, to take your eyes off of the creator. But never forget that just a few verses later, the same Jesus has said it's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Same one says what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so he says rich people can enter the kingdom. Now, Solomon is probably the richest man that ever lived. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, he made the statement, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, but nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. You know what he means when he says vanity? It's self-absorbed, but ultimately what he means is meaningless. It's a waste. This is a man that was so rich that forests did not exist in Israel's climate at that time. And so Solomon had so much wealth that he said one day, I want to take a walk through the woods. So he had trees and dirt imported to Israel and a wilderness built behind his kingdom just so he could take a walk. Now, some of you got money, but you ain't got that. 
You're not at that income level yet. And Solomon, that same man, writes this letter and he says, none of it was satisfying. And then, of course, at the end, he says, remember the creator of the days of your youth. The moment you begin to wield money and possessions to reach a certain status or to reach a certain influence, to look a certain way, or to be the envy of your peers, and let's be honest, to be the envy of those dirty peasants, you have ceased to hold these things in tension, and you have crossed over into the arena of vanity instead of virtue. You've crossed over into a category. You are now worshiping an idol rather than submitting to God's lordship because the gifts belong to him. They aren't yours. Friend, you will never find in money that which you were designed to only find in God. But Jesus directly, excuse me, directly connects money to the issue of discipleship in verse 24. It's one of the clearest verses in the Bible. Yet many believe that they have found the secret to beating Jesus on this one, as I said. You cannot serve God in money. You can't do it. I know you're going to forget this within 15 minutes of eating your lunch. You cannot serve God in money. So stop trying. Pursue God. Be rich. And good works. So what are you supposed to do about your money, though? Number three, your investments reveal your reality. Your investments reveal your reality. Be careful what you are sacrificing to ultimately gain nothing. Dealing with money requires a lot of wisdom that, quite frankly, most people don't possess. That's just the truth. You probably aren't doing a great job at it. And I say this as someone, I have never been poor. And I say this as someone who has known some extremely wealthy people. I've known wealthy people that their lust and craving for money has literally destroyed their families. Spent no time raising their children because they could just pay someone to do that. People whose marriages ended because they had the money to finance adultery. But so that's what most people, they're like, okay, end of story, episode of Law and Order. But I've known a bunch of wealthy people who used every penny God ever blessed them with for the glory of God and the mission of Jesus Christ and the discipleship of others. They have wielded their finances to do so much good in this world that thousands upon thousands of people believe in Jesus Christ because they stewarded their wealth well. I've also known a lot of poor people who are the most virtuous people I ever met. And I've also known poor people who have cheated on their wives, destroyed their families, neglected their kids, and added no value to soul or society. Poor, rich, same God. Same good works, same calling. No matter how little or how much you think you have, God has called you personally to wield every bit of it for his glory. Proverbs eleven twenty eight 28 warns us about trusting in riches. 
He says, Solomon writing this, he says, whoever trusts in riches will fall. Not if. There's no qualification. Do you know that? He doesn't say whoever trusts in his riches will fall if he does this. No, just the very virtue that you trust in your riches. You are going to fall in the end, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Life giving. That is the key. The Bible speaks of wealth positively. Proverbs 14, 24. The crown of the wise is their wealth. Hmm. But the folly of fools brings more folly. God designed the world to be ruled by wise people. I don't know if you know that. I hope you do. But God also designed the world to work in such a way. Natural law just dictates that if you embrace God's wisdom, you will probably be wealthier than stupid people. Now, there are obvious exceptions to that. And we see them all on social media. In the end, they will fall. Yet, God warns us in Proverbs 23, 4 through 5, do not toil. The word toil means work yourself to the bone. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. So those of you that just get up every morning and all you're living for is a paycheck, God says cut that out. Even your job exists for His glory. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on money, it is gone. You've experienced that. On payday, got money in the checking account, pay your mortgage, all gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. Wise people realize that wealth is not eternal. The key is an understanding that when you acquire wealth through shrewd or wise living, which is a good thing, that you now actually have more responsibility to pursue the source of wisdom and the source of money by pursuing God in the gospel, in discipleship, and in stewarding God's gifts by investing in building a great life that reflects the values of God to the surrounding world. And I'll tell you, that's getting easier all the time. Friends, if you will just, at this point, steward your wealth to be faithful to your spouse for all of your life. If you will steward your wealth to raise children that fear and love God, if you will steward your wealth to build the church of Jesus Christ, do you know how unique that makes you in this world? That you actually use your wealth to show that there are things more important than your wealth? You see, friends, you need a personal vision for being rich toward God. And Matthew 6, 21 gives you the precept to build that on. Move your treasure to show the world how great God is. You can buy nice things. You can guilt-free buy a big house. You can invest your finances wisely and reap the reward for it. But that puts a new burden on you. And that burden is that if you trust the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will understand that God has made an investment in you. And he means to reap the reward for his investment, just like you would. How will you use the material gain God has blessed you with to show how valuable God is in your life? 
How will you wield it for His glory? How will you wield it to make more disciples through your life? Because money is only a blessing if it is pointed in the right direction. It's true of everything. Romans, again, chapter 1 reveals to us that there is a point in your sin where when you deny God and deny repentance enough times, it says God will give you over, in the original language it says, to a debased mind. In other words, when you see people living immoral lifestyles and they're just living it up and they say, why would I repent? I'm having the best time ever. Scripture actually tells us that what they're experiencing is the curse of God. Because God will give us blessings, and when we misuse His blessings, His blessings become judgments. And just because He keeps giving us more doesn't mean it continues to be a blessing. Because when you deny God, He turns it into a curse. Because that is as close to heaven as you will ever get. In 2 Corinthians 9... Paul is taking up an offering for the suffering churches in Jerusalem, and he writes this. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency... In all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. All sufficiency in all times. What makes you sufficient? It's not your bank account. It's not even the amount you give. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only thing that brings what Paul is talking about is real faith in a real crucified Savior who rose from the dead. And he says, you are sufficient. So give out of your sufficiency to pursue every good work. But before that, he makes an overarching statement about generosity that they have to understand their money through the lens of that sufficiency. This is natural law. You sow a little, you reap a little. You sow a lot, you reap a lot. The question he is really posing to them is how they understand their material possessions. Do you invest only to receive the temporal gain of this world? And if you do, that means you don't understand what God means by good works. It's a 360 degree understanding of what God has invested in you and how he wants to receive his return. God wants all of me. He doesn't just want some. He wants me to be all in for him. He wants every part. He wants us to worship with everything, including and especially my finances. A few verses later in 2 Corinthians 9, 15, he uses the phrase inexpressible gift to conclude. He says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Now, it might be tempting to look at that and saying, well, he's using hyperbole. He's overstating. He's exaggerating because there's nothing that's, that's inexpressible. But I'll tell you, he's not using hyperbole here because what he means by thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift is he's talking about Jesus Christ. He's talking about the generosity of God towards you and I. You cannot find a number to assign to the value 
of God the Son paying the penalty for your sin. So in light of His incredible generosity, I challenge you to look at your pockets. I challenge you to look at your pursuits. What are you chasing, friends? And how are you stewarding what God has given you? How can I find the glory of God in my life? My money must converge with my worship. A few application points this morning. First, reconsider how you pursue and use money. Some of you think it's, it's as simple as saying, well, I don't have any, so I'm done. Well, maybe that's the first issue you got to deal with. Because maybe God wants you to work for it. But for all of us, whatever your income level, we have people literally from all income levels in this room right now. But for every one of you, you need to spend time taking inventory of how are you chasing it and how are you using it? And is it for the glory of God or is it for the glory of me? Secondly, repent of a faithless understanding of your money. If you're not applying faith to your finances, you need to repent of that. Thirdly, be wise in how you make and spend money. Use the wisdom principles of Scripture. If you steal to get it, let me tell you, it's not going to end well for you. If you embezzle to get it, it's not going to end well for you. So how you get it is important, but also important. How are you stewarding it? Are you wasting your money? Do you spend it on things that don't give God glory? Fourthly, form a vision for what it means to worship with money. Think through it. And then finally, invest time, talent, and treasure in the mission of Jesus. Love God. Love others. With everything. Everything.